and good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet and in the studio with me today is Lauren Landis. On the line with us is one of my favorite people, Leslie Newman. She's the author of the children's classic, uh, Heather Has Two Mommies, but she's also an accomplished poet, for adult poetry. Uh, some of her books were I Carry My Mother and October Morning, A Song for Matthew Shepard. Her new book is I Wish My Father. Leslie, hi, how are you? Hi, David. Great to hear you. You know, I was just trying to think, when was it the last time we saw each other? We had lunch. You were here in Dallas. It has to be at least two years. It must have been for the Texas Library Association. Right, right. So that's a couple of years that ago. That sounds about right. Because yeah. I remember when last time you had lunch with her, you tried to get her on, but it didn't work out. It just didn't work out. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. Right. But um, I love your new book. It's one of the most accessible books of poetry I've ever read. It reads, it's poetry, but it reads like a novel. Uh, it Because it, it tells a beautiful story about the last year of your fa or so of your father's life um, and how you cared for him. Um, and it's something that we all, a lot of us go through. Um, but I kept reading and thinking, oh yeah, we have the same father. <laughs> okay. I want to read just one little uh, section and Boy, this was my father. Uh, it's in a poem called, um, and I'm losing my place, uh, The First Time We Visit. And toward the end of the poem, the neurologist does not catch on. Who's running for president, he asks my father, who is now convinced that the doctor is completely bonkers. Hillary and that son of a bitch, he bellows, causing the two receptionists out front to break into peals of squilling laughter. He's fine. The doctor leans back and glances... Uh, up at the clock to let me know I've wasted enough of his time. He's great. Okay, so with my father, it was, and this was during uh, when George Bush was president, uh, he, the doctor says, okay, who's president? And my father could not come up with a name, but he, he's sitting there and he's, uh, no, uh, uh, and, and just making faces and trying to come up with that name. And I said, he knows. <laughs> he gets credit for this one. Exactly. So, um, you're one of three children. Did you do the primary care for your father? For my father, for my mother, and for my grandmother. It's very often the girl. I have two brothers. And it's also very often the queer person. Right. You know, because yep. our lives, are, you know, well, for me, you know, I don't have children. I know a lot of us do. But, you know, it's just assumed that we can drop whatever and just rush to their sides. And I'm actually was very fortunate that I could do that because I feel like it's really a privilege and a blessing and an honor to care for someone at the end of their life, especially one's parents. Mm -hmm. um, but it did, you know, was also annoying that it was just expected of me. Mm -hmm. Same thing. I'm an only child, but still I was in that position uh, because, because I could. Uh, you know, you live in Massachusetts. He was in New York. Why wasn't he in Florida like the rest of our people? <laughs> right. He hated Florida. <laughs> he did not want to leave his home. And also, he practiced law uh, till he was probably 88 and a half. And he gave up his practice very unwillingly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had to really force his hand because he was doing disservice to his clients. It was really heartbreaking. Sure. So he practiced all the way up to he was 88, and he passed away at 90, is that correct? Because that is correct. It was right to the end of his life. Wow, wow. But what I realized was his secretary was doing a lot of covering up for him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because he really was not capable of, he was not the man he used to be, I'll put it that way. Sure. And, you know, so he just didn't have the mental capacities he once did, but of course he was loath to admit that. So the more obvious that got, the tighter he hung on. It really was very heartbreaking. So, your dad was an attorney, obviously, uh, you know, gifted in writing himself. Um, and at the beginning of this book, you uh, share a poem that he wrote for you for your 60th birthday. I like to read that. Um, I, th I think it's just great. And it goes, uh, science tells us that to live, one needs air and water. But to have a better life, one must have a daughter. To have one so talented, caring, and bright even makes old age all right. That is just such... That I read that. I was... I know. That's just... Tears. To that, what a gift. So that's everybody's favorite poem in the book. And I'm like, really, Dad? <laughs> 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 so it's the only poem he ever wrote. And he wrote it, you know, in the midst of my taking care of him and it was so sweet he sent me an email and he said I wrote you a poem for your birthday don't judge me too harshly uh. and then came the poem and I you know called him right away and I said dad this is the best birthday present I ever I ever got oh yeah and absolutely it does yeah. mean so much to me that you know I could just see him like when he wrote like he would his like tongue would stick out of his mouth sometimes <laughs> like when he was really thinking hard and I could just imagine him writing this poem on a yellow legal pad with a big pen and you know it just it was so touching to me so I just had to put it in the book. Oh of course uh, one place where uh, he I guess this is before this uh, he can't believe his age and you know he oh he says he looks like he's 60 and, right. and well, yeah go ahead well I just know my dad was always an extremely good-looking man and somewhat vain about that so he you know he kept his what, what he called his girlish figure <laughs> and he kept his hair and he kept his teeth or i should say his thirty thousand dollar implants um, and he had beautiful blue eyes and um yeah and everyone just everyone who saw him told him he looked great so, yeah, he couldn't believe he was 90. He thought he was 60. And I kept saying, well, Dad, I'm 60, so mm -hmm. that can't be. Right. With my father, his dementia was Alzheimer's. So his long-term memory was okay, and it was his short-term memory that was going. So I never knew. He always recognized me up until uh, the week he died. He always recognized me when I came into the room, which is a blessing because a lot of people with parents with Alzheimer's uh, say that that's one of the hardest things when your parent doesn't recognize you. But my father wasn't seeing 50-year-old me. He was seeing 20-year-old me. But that was okay. You know, yeah. it, 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 he, he, still, he still knew who I was. Um, your father didn't have that kind of dementia, did he? No, not at all. He more had, um, you know, he couldn't find words. He, you know, he was always a, a numbers man, and he started making mistakes in math, which was very alarming to me. Mm. But he also, he would have some hallucinations, and that was partly from being dehydrated. Mm. But, you know, he called me one day and he told me there was a zebra in his kitchen, you know, things like that. Which, mm. you know, there was a little boy standing at the foot of his bed, and there was a woman who wouldn't come out of his bathroom, and, you know, things like that. And um, the worst part of it was that he was frightened. 
know, because he, he knew these things were odd, but he still totally believed they were happening. Mm -hmm. um, he had neighbors that were always yelling. Which did not exist. Which, and that's one thing that I love about the book is that the poems have some surprise elements to them because he's describing uh, these neighbors that are always yelling and arguing until, what did you do? So, at the end of the poem, you realize that, that you know, that they're all in his head. Because mm -hmm. you went, you, you found out there was nobody living next door, even. Right, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. So, at that point, he had lived, moved into independent living, and, you know, when you make a big change like that, for someone who's having some uh, mental compromise, it can really kick things to the next level. But I really didn't have a choice because he couldn't live on his own anymore. You so, um, you know, at first I believed him, and then when I got there and saw that the apartment in the independent living place next to him was empty, you know, it's like, oh, that's mm -hmm. what's happening. I was wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about how you even came to the point to write a book about your father. We know that you wrote one for your mother after she passed um, called I Carry My Mother. So right. did you feel obligated to write one about your father also, or did it just kind of come naturally? Well, now my parents are a box set, which I think would amuse them. Um, <laughs> I always knew I'd write a book about my dad because, um, you know, of course, Obligated is, I don't know if that's the word I would use, but, um, you know, he read the book about my mom, and he was very moved by it. That was mm -hmm. very emotional for both of us, for me to put that book in his hand, you know, and, you know, it doesn't work the other way. I can't put this book in my mother's hand, right, because she passed first. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was a way to keep him alive in a way, keep him right next to me, hear his voice you know, go through these memories, process what it was like to go through the end of his life with him. It comforted me. Um, it helped me understand. It's just kind of how I make sense of, of everything I experience is by writing it. Was it cathartic? I would say so. And um, one thing that's really nice about it is sharing my dad now with people who have never met him, <laughs> except on the page. Right. And, you know, I've gotten such wonderful responses. People are just like, oh, write another, write part two. I love your dad. You know, it's just been, it's been really sweet. One of the things that I found, though, also was, even though, like you said, caring for the elderly parent often falls, well, in your case, often falls on the daughter, but very often falls on the gay or lesbian kid, um, it's very lonely. It's not something that we generally talk about, which is why I, I was so delighted when I read your book. Uh, and I said, oh, we, we have to do this uh, on the air because it is so lonely and it is an LGBT issue that we, we just don't talk about and share. Um, I always say the hardest week of my life was the week that I took away my father's driver's license, his mail. I had to take away his mail. He couldn't tell the difference between uh, a solicitation and a bill, which is why I became a member of the NRA for a year. Um, <laughs> but he, he just couldn't tell, so I took away his mail, took away uh, his apartment, and had to move him into uh, memory care. Um, hardest week of my life. And, and he wasn't understanding at first why I was doing these things until uh, we were sitting having 
breakfast at his uh, regular diner in Delray Beach, where normal Jews go when they're that age. Um, <laughs> but we were sitting at the diner, and um, his regular waitress came over, and she said, oh, Wally, how are you? And, and he's, I said, well, he's been in the hospital. She said, I know. I called the, um, the ambulance. He was here when he passed out. And I said, oh, thank you. And I looked at my father, and I said, that's not what you told me, because he told me the story that he had an accident, showed me where it was, which was down Atlantic Boulevard, um, and none of the facts added up. Um, I said, do you know what happened to his car? Because he had told me that it was in the shop being repaired. She said, yeah, it's right out here. I've been watching it for him. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so I said to him, you can't live on your own. You have a choice. We found a very nice place for you to live. You can either live there or you can come live with me, but you can't live on your own anymore. But taking away everything is such an emotional, hard, just traumatic thing to do when these are your parents who took care of you. Oh, it was so painful. I mean, I was so grateful that, that you know, because I'd been begging my father to stop driving, and I just thought... He's going to take someone out, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, when the neurologist said, you can't drive, and I was so shocked that my father just said, okay. Mm -hmm. Because I had been, you know, begging him for months, and he was so belligerent about it. Mm -hmm. And I was really scared, you know, that he would hurt someone and or himself and or me when I was in the car with him. I was the only one on the planet that would still be his passenger. I thought, well, if I go out with my dad, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, then when he just agreed i thought well you know deep down he knew but it was just too emasculating for him to have his daughter do that have his daughter take away his car keys mm -hmm. he just he could not his male ego could not tolerate that so had your dad been having issues uh with driving even prior to your mother's passing because i you know all of this kind of takes me to one of your poems in a book my father drove my mother which i found humorous but a little sad at the same time Yes, well, I think the whole book has this thread of humor and this mm -hmm. thread of sorrow going through it. But my father, you know, was always a little bit of a scary driver. My, my beloved spouse, we would not, would not <laughs> go in the car with him because he drove with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. He drove, you know, and I never even thought about it because he drove like that my whole life until she pointed out, like, why is he driving like that? Yeah, well, again, I want, do we need to go to break? We've got two minutes. I, I want to read it, uh, just the beginning of it, which I just totally captivated me. Um, crazy for 63 years, one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas, the car lurching along the Long Island Expressway, my father steering with his left hand on the wheel, his right arm slung across the back of the seat, his hand stroking my mother's rigid right shoulder as if it were a frightened feral cat, knowing she was taking her life in her hands by putting her life in his hands. What, in, what, what a visual. <laughs> That's it. I saw that my whole life in the back seat. And the best arguments I remember between my parents was when my father was driving. Yeah. Also, terrible driver always. So it was hard to tell that his driving was just getting dangerous because of his perception and... Yeah. 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 And, and with well, his, you know, yeah. I, I couldn't, you know, 
I wasn't going to have my father drive a different way, you know, at that point in his life, like, you know, as normal people drive with one foot, you know, you're just using your right foot. So, but it was, it was quite a bumpy ride. <laughs> yeah. We need to take a break. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. Leslie Newman is our guest. Her new book is I Wish My Father, and we'll be back with more right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Ron Landis. Leslie Newman, who's the author of the new book of poetry, I Wish My Father, uh, is on the line with us. Um, it, this book, because taking care of your parents is such a lonely thing to do normally, uh, it's usually one of the kids who's doing it themselves, so they, you can't even share it with siblings in, in so many cases. Uh, this book was just powerful to me, and it's almost 15 years since my father passed away. So bringing back all of these memories, uh, it, the, the book just blew me away. Um, my father has his day in court. The piece I loved here, it, it was so beautifully written, Leslie, uh, the way you talk about the judge calls him up to stand next to, to her. Right, right. You know, my father's take on that was that um, she had a hearing problem and she <laughs> needed him to come so, you know, closest as she could hear, but she was really actually being very kind and realized mm -hmm. that he had a hearing problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that really, really touched me. It is, because you don't think of a courtroom as being a place where there's a lot of kindness going on, necessarily. Uh, That's true. You but, know, you know, my father was a fixture in the, sure. in the uh, New York courts, in, in, in the Brooklyn courts. For, he, was a, he practiced for 60 years, hmm. right? But very few people can say that. Um, and so, of course, they knew him very well. And there was also, you know, there's in that same poem, I talk about how um, they didn't make him empty his pockets and go through the metal detector and, and all of that. You know, and, he, you know, he joked about it and said, well, I guess if I haven't blown the place sky high by now, they figure I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, his logic makes sense. Yeah, true. So uh, spend the time on the people that you don't know. Um, would you like to read us one of your poems? And w we were talking earlier in the week about which one, and I kept picking the long ones. And you said, well, let's pick something shorter. Um, possibly, so it's, yeah. Is there one that, that you would like to uh, uh, hear? Uh, just one of the shorter ones, possibly even the first poem in the book. Okay. So that so I just want to explain to your listeners that the poems have a certain form, which is that the title also acts as the first line of the poem. Right. So there's no pause between the title and, and just going right into the poem. When my father wakes up on that first sweltering night of that first calming summer, soaked in sweat like my mother when she suffered those terrible hot flashes 40 years ago, he stumbles out of bed and lumbers to the archaic air conditioner, fumbling for the right button to bring it back to life with a wheeze and a groan and a thump. Next, he shuffles across the faded carpet, slides between the worn sheets, and lifts the torn blanket to cover my mother, who will surely grow stiff from the frigid air blowing between them as she had for more than 60 years. 
Who could blame him for forgetting that she had left him and was now slumbering on the other side of town, wrapped in a shroud beneath the stony, stubborn ground? How he missed her old, cold shoulder. And that's one of the things, the ending of this one, that I love about this whole entire book. There's a, very often a surprise at the end of the poem. Yeah. Surprise and also some double meaning. A and some double, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was from the first poem that I was thinking, oh, yeah, same dad. Um, now, my father outlived my mother by about 30 years. But during that, and he even remarried, but he always missed my mother. I mean, there was just uh, something that he just, everything was not okay for him for the last 30 years of his life because he missed her so much. Um, and uh, as he progressed through his dementia, um, he thought she was still there. Wow. Yeah, yeah. My father also would say to me, you know, I saw your mother. You know, she was in bed with me last night. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I, I, who would I be to take that away from him? I, I said, you know, that must have been really nice, Dad, to see her. You know, because why try to bring him into my world when his world was obviously much more pleasurable mm -hmm. at a certain point? And um, what my father would do was he'd quote a conversation that he and my mother had had had, and he was quoting from thirty, forty years ago. Wow. So, um, right, exactly. Why take them into a less pleasurable world? Um, How long did it take you to write this book after he passed? I would say about a year. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure you have. A lot of stories. Was it hard to um, decide which ones you wanted to share and the ones that you wanted maybe to keep to yourself or private? Well, you know, you know, it's it's. I call the book a memoir in verse, mm -hmm. so it has a narrative arc to it, and it just I kind of wrote it in chronological order from beginning to end. It felt like a very organic process, so I didn't really think it through as much as I just wrote and, and what came out came out. Mm -hmm. um, let's see here. Oh, okay. I, I know one that, again, very similar experience. Tell the story about your father and the person who um, recognized him by the college ring he had. Because my father went to the same school. <laughs> So it was kind of amazing. We were sitting in the diner. So for us, it's the celebrity diner on Long Island, mm -hmm. uh, where they knew my father very well. And, uh, you know, across the aisle in a different booth, there was a man who asked my dad if he went to City College, and he was in his 90s and had recognized my father's college ring, which, you know, men of that generation often wore. So my father was very impressed by his eyesight first of all, mm -hmm. and then they had this little competition going, you know, because the other man was older, so, you know, he quote-unquote won, because he had lived longer, um, and he was with his son, and my dad was with me, and, you know, his son was just kind of rolled his eyes like, you know, he was a little embarrassed, but I thought it was great, you know, that they, the two older gentlemen bonded in this way, but then, uh, when the 
other man's meal came and his son put a bib on him, my father was just so mortified on the other man's behalf. And he just, out of respect and kindness, you know, he just looked away. Mm -hmm. He felt like it would be very embarrassing for that man um, to be seen that way. So, you know, every day there was a different form of heartbreak when I was with my dad. Mm -hmm. That was definitely one of them. You know, reading and uh, listening to you speak about your father and, and reading these poems, he sounds like he there was never a dull moment with him. He was quite a character. Um, and I, I want to read a segment of uh, from the title of the book. Um, I wish my father. Uh, I wish my father a very happy birthday and yell in his ear, "Dad, can you believe you're 90? He backs out of backs out of my hug, tilts his head to one side and peers at me intently, trying to figure out if what I'm saying is true. Then he collapses onto a kitchen chair as if the weight of every day of those 90 years is pressing down on him hard. Got any words of wisdom, Dad? I try to lighten the mood. He sighs deeply, shakes his head vigorously, and then begins to speak. My mother died at 80, my brother died at 50, my sister at 35. I don't know when my father died. Maybe he never did. He'd be 27, 127 now, the old bastard. <laughs> so it's like just the moments you, like that. You have to say the, the, the line after that. Okay, okay. 27 now, the old bastard, the, and it would serve him right. That's right. Right, right. That's an important line. <laughs> so um, even, even in times of moments of, you know, what could be, oh, my God, you could freak out, sounds like he had the quite the sense of humor to him. Oh, yes. You know, kind of that's how my whole family got through any, you know, uh, sadness or tragedy. You know, we just by joking about it and often self-depreciating jokes, you know, which is very, very typical of a Jewish family. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, and he was a numbers man. You know, he was brilliant. I think my dad actually had a little bit of Asperger's. But, you know, we would would, um, play math games in the car and we would just throw these huge numbers at him and he would just add them up for us and we were always astonished at that so that's why there were numbers running through this entire collection of poetry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um in um oh in the poem for as long as i can you talk about moving him to the nursing home why did you choose the nursing home that you did because i know just looking at nursing homes for me was I did that for two I think two or three days and it was just the saddest thing that I've ever done so um, it what you know he was in independent living mm-hmm. so he wasn't in the nursing home part of this complex you know they had all these different levels yeah but um, he had a choice he could come live in a facility near me or near my younger brother and my younger brother has something that I don't have which is a son ah. so that's my father's grandchild so of course that was very appealing to my dad to be near his grandchild mm-hmm. so for the last year of his life well the last 11 months he didn't last a whole year he moved to New Jersey which you know if you're a native New Yorker you just know what you don't that, do that that right there will kill you <laughs> <laughs> But, um, it's like somebody. So, let me just explain yeah, say, for listening. For, 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 for us Texans, like, it's like, what are you talking about? No, <laughs> it, it's kind of like, would you move your parent to Oklahoma? 
You just oh, wouldn't do that. You, oh, you wouldn't do that. No, you would not. Right. Okay, if, so if you loved them, you would not. <laughs> that's a parallel. So, um, so even though, you know, now he lives near my younger brother, my younger brother was great, I have to say. Um, I was always, and especially from that point on, my dad's emotional support. You know, I took my mother's role, and mm -hmm. you know, I talked to my dad every day at least once, and he talked about his feelings and his sadness. And, you know, he didn't talk about, you know, my brother would always say, he doesn't talk about this stuff with me. Um, so while my brother was more on the ground with the, the tasks that had to be done, you know, bring my father food if he didn't like the supper they were serving or whatever, you know, I was the one who, who really was the emotional support system, for, you know, for the, that last 11 months of my dad's life. So, you know, he chose to, and also... You know, my dad was a lifelong New Yorker, so in some ways, New Jersey culture is more similar than Massachusetts culture. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, when I brought him to a couple of nursing homes, um, I always said to them, you know, do you have a guy that my dad could talk to, especially a Jewish man? You know, so they, you know, they would find an old Jewish man and he'd slip out. And I remember my dad who was always very proper, and even on the weekends when he didn't go to work, he would wear... Um, not a suit and tie, but, you know, a nice pair of pants and, and a white button-down shirt. He asked this man, so do you get dressed up for dinner? And the guy was like, nah, we all wear our sweatpants all the time, thinking that's what my father wanted to hear. My father was so horrified by that. Mm -hmm. You know, he just, to him, you know, he, he was just, he had his dignity until the end. Right. And his pride. Right. And finding a place that will allow your parents to maintain their dignity... Of the places I looked at, some of them, oh, no, <laughs> there was none. Um, so, you know, my dad, when he went into independent living, he really should have been in more of an assisted living, but of course he refused to do that, so we right. had to hire an aide to be with him in independent living. Mm. So, you know, that was like a whole other thing, and it was mostly because he could not take his, be um, counted on to take his pills correctly. Oh, and the pills, so, yes. Even though we, you know, the pills, that's a whole other thing, right? We put them in one of those strips, you know, Monday morning, Monday evening. But he would just, like, open, you know, of the top of whatever section at will and, and dump them into his hands, and half of them would be on the floor because when I would go there, I'd find all these pills everywhere. And, you know, he wasn't taking his pills correctly, so we had to hire someone for that. And, and mostly, you know, they kept him company, so he didn't really befriend any of the other residents. He just kind of hung out with his aide, which was, you know, not the point of this. Right. Uh, with my father, when I was moving him out of his apartment, um, there were so, there were pills from his uh, second wife. Now she had died seven or eight years before uh, before this, and her pills were still there. And I found so many sets of those trays with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Mm -hmm. And he never knew whether it was Monday or Thursday, so he'd take whichever... Right. Oh, God. Um, after he was at his uh, memory care facility for a, a week or two, they kept all the pills. And so when he was getting the right medication, he called me about two weeks later and he said, well, I'm all better now. I can go home. Right. So... You know, it was, it's one thing after another that uh, is just very difficult about this. 
uh, that now, 15 years later, I can laugh about it, but at the time, each of those things is traumatic. Right. Well, isn't it um, tragedy plus time equals comedy or something like that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we need to take a break in just a few minutes. Um, I want to go back to um, uh, your, your very beginnings. Uh, and that was when you wrote Heather Has Two Mommies. Uh, uh -huh. I, for our local listeners um, who don't know the book, this is the book that Pastor Jeffress down at First Baptist Church started a boycott of when he was up in Wichita Falls. He made a national name for himself by stealing copies of the book from uh, the local library and throwing them away, which was actually, Leslie, um, good for your sales because they kept replacing it. Um, <laughs> but he made a name for himself and got transferred, and we got stuck with this guy, uh, thanks to you. Um, wh what I wanted to know was, he made national attention, your sales increased, so you were actually good for each other. You don't think of it that way, I guess. I was just wondering, did he, with all of his White House visits during the last four years, did um, Pastor Jeffress ever invite you to come along with him? You know... <laughs> Surprisingly, he never did. He never did. <laughs> no. So, so the two of you aren't in touch, huh? No. So I do have to say that um, the librarian at the time, her name was Linda Hughes, and she was wonderful, and she did get some kind of recognition, and I was really glad that she did, because, you know, she really, I mean, I don't know how she felt about LGBTQ rights, but I know how she feels about freedom of expression, and she really defended the book. Yeah, for those who don't know, another description, <laughs> in addition to one that David just told, Heather Hurst to Mommies is like the, the, is, is pioneering um, in the children's book um, genre. For those of us who collect um, LGBT children's books, this is, I don't know if it was the actual very first one, but one of the first ones and probably the most popular one. So well, it's definitely the that was the first book that showed an intact family of two lesbian moms and their child. And now it was a book previous called "When Megan Went Away." Mm -hmm. It was published by Lollipop Power, and it was written by Jane Severin about um, a little girl who lived with her mom and her mom's partner, and then her mom's partner moved out. Oh, oh and the, wow! Okay. Really, the first book is so unhappy. So. You know, Heather has two mommies is more joyful. Yeah, they stay together. <laughs> right, they yeah. just... I mean, children's books shouldn't be depressing if they don't need to be. Yeah, they don't well, need to be. Know, Sometimes everybody, everybody wants to see themselves in a children's yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the idea that so many kids were going through divorce, yeah. 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 So, um, Josh is giving me uh, a, a finger, which means that... It's Not the finger, a finger. A finger, I yeah. said. Okay. Uh, <laughs> means we need to take a break. We're talking to Leslie and Newman. Uh, her new book is I Wish My Father. And we'll be back with a little bit more with Leslie right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here with Lauren Landis. Our guest is Leslie and Newman. Her new book is I Wish My Father. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about when uh, your father agreed to go into assisted living, uh, he said he'll give it a year, and he did. Always a man of his word. Yeah, because he, he um, passed away 11 months and 27 days later. 
So, uh, I know with my father, it was a similar situation. N not that he passed away that quickly. Uh, he lived in memory care for about a year and a half. Um, but he said he, the thing he was most worried about was, well, what if I don't like it here? And I said, well, we only signed a three-month lease, and there was no lease uh, at all. But I said, we signed a three-month lease because I wanted him to give it a chance. And he hated moving. He just hated moving. Um, when he got remarried, he sold the house I grew up in. And he was just hysterical in tears that day. When he should, when I understand that, but he was looking forward also to a new life with his new wife. Um, but so I said to him when I brought him there, well, if you really don't like it here, we'll find someplace else for you. And that's what he agreed to. Because, so, you know, yeah. uh -huh. my dad, you know, he was still working, you know, while all this was happening. And, and so I would sometimes go to his office with him and, I, you know, I would hear him tell the, the people that he was working with, you know, about his impending move. And he would say things like, oh, they have all these activities, they have all these clubs, they have all this, they have all that. And so I was fooled into thinking he felt that way, but I realized that was all a ruse. Mm -hmm. Because, again, because of his ego and his pride, he had to put up, you know, this front that this was a great thing. But in reality, he, you know, and... and we had to sell the house in order for this to happen. So he knew he wasn't go going back to the house because there was no house to go back to. Mm -hmm. And then when we got there, you know, he did not take part in any activities. He did not meet any new people. He hated everything about it. And it, that, that was just so devastating. The only time he was happy was when either I came to visit or uh, twice a week my younger brother who, you know, who lived nearby would, would either, he, he might would go and have lunch with him or he'd bring my dad to his house, which was even better because that felt normal to him, you know, mm -hmm. to be in my brother's home. But he was just so unhappy. You know, the only thing he did was he would go to the library, which I wouldn't say is an actually a social activity, mm -hmm. but, you know, he would uh, read uh, the newspapers there. Mm. Um, it took my father a good year to meet anybody and uh, the... the administrator at the home, at the memory care uh, home was real good at keeping in touch with me and one day she called me and she said uh, I have something I need to talk to you about and so I said oh is there anything wrong no 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 nothing's wrong uh, she said uh, your father met somebody and I said well, well that's good uh, and he's she said and he's been staying in her room I said oh is that a problem and she said, no, not for us, but sometimes the families object. And I said, object? I said, he's 87 <laughs> years old. I hope my genes came from that side of the family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, he, he met somebody who also had Alzheimer's, and I met her once. She was very sweet. I'm so glad he had somebody to share the last three months of his life with. Yeah. That's very touching. Yeah, yeah. So, what, do you know the official cause of your de uh, your father's death? Do you think um, him being in a nursing home contributed to it? Well, so you know, he was found in, in the morning by his aide, which I could just imagine how horrendous you know that experience was. Um, I think he died of a broken heart. Mm -hmm. um, it could have been a stroke. 
a heart attack, you know, we didn't want an autopsy. You know, it's like, sure. right. go through that. You know, there's no foul play here. Um, and they said that there was no sign of a struggle. Like, he wasn't like, you know, no, there was no sign of agitation on his face or that he was like reaching, you know, for the phone or anything. Mm-hmm. They, 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 you know, for all they can tell, he just died peacefully. And, you know, who wouldn't want that? Right. Right. Um, I mean, that's one thing that uh, it's very difficult to let go when it's your parents and especially when it's your last parent because all yeah. of a sudden you're the older generation um, but when you say when you say who wouldn't want that my father also uh, he was in hospice about a week ahead of time uh, the nursing home called me that they're, you know, he just wasn't feeling well, so they sent him to the hospital. Uh, I got a call from the hospital on Monday that he wasn't doing well, so I ran down to Florida. And he waited for me to get there, and they moved him to a hospice floor. And one, I guess it was Friday morning, he, um, uh, I walked into his room, and I heard him take a breath, and that was it. I went to the nurse. I said, I think my father passed away. She said, I was just in there. I said, I know he was breathing when I came in. So he just waited right. and, and very peacefully passed away. And like you said, who wouldn't want that? Right, right. Yeah. You know, it was so different than my mother's death. You know, my mother was in a lot of pain mm-hmm. for a very long time. She had cancer and COPD. You know, it's so interesting because her illness was all physical and my father's illness was all cerebral. Mm. So, you know, he was still, you know, walking. I mean, I couldn't even keep up with him. I mean, the <laughs> man would jump out of the car and, and make a beeline across the parking lot to wherever, whatever doctor we were going to. Um, so he was in great physical health. In fact, he had seen his doctor a week before he died. And, and you know, the doctor said, you know, you, you have the heart of a 60-year-old. And I'm like, again with a 60-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking, I'm glad my heart's that great. So that, uh, yeah, I guess it had to be all the more surprising if you just had a clean bill of health. It was there. It was shocking. It really was. Mm-hmm. Mm. But, but you know, I have to say, a blessing is that he's not around now because I don't think he could. Well, he could not have dealt with what was going on with Trump <laughs> when he was still in office. My father knew Fred Trump, uh-huh. and oh. he was passion with a passion. He had some legal doings with him, and he, he said they were, you know, he was the meanest person he'd ever met in his life. Mm. So, you know, my father would just rant about Trump every day on the phone. We had to get through that before we could have any other kind of conversation. So his head would have imploded, you know, from all the things that happened. And then, you know, wearing a mask would have been terribly difficult for my father. You know, he, he lost most of his hearings. He had a cochlear implant. Oh. So, so without being able to see people's mouths, I, he, it just would have been really, I think, impossible. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't have left him there, you know, in independent living because, you know, I, everybody was basically shut in their rooms for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Because, of, you know, it, it, it spread so quickly in places like that. So he would have had to come live with me or with my brother. Um, this, what we're going through now has to be terrible for older people. Um, I mean, so many more uh, are likely to have just breathing problems that uh, mm-hmm. wearing the mask is difficult. So um, I think we're almost through it. Have you had your vaccine yet? 
Uh, I am not on the list yet because I'm not uh, in Massachusetts. If you're not a you know frontline person, you have to be over 75. Oh, 75. Okay, here it's 65. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I have to. I'm still waiting. Um, you know, for it to open up for me, and I hope they, they told me a few weeks. I hope that's true. Hopefully, we'll it will see. be. Yeah, another vaccine sounds like it's going to be approved within a week or two. Yep. Um, which will certainly help supply. I was in a right. clinical trial, so and I just found out that, yes, indeed, that vaccine that actually made me real sick the first dose, uh, it, I, I actually got the real vaccine. So. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we have to end the show 10 minutes early uh, because we're doing everything we can to keep the studio clean and safe for each other. We change the windscreens, wipe down all the counters uh, before good. the next show comes in. So... Uh, Leslie, it was a pleasure talking Always to you. Always great to talk to you, Leslie. Yeah. Always great. I so appreciate you having me on the show to talk about my new book. And, um, you know, you're both terrific. So stay safe. You too. And, you um, too. Hopefully at some point I can come back to Texas. I hope you will. And yes. I'm looking forward to it. Okie doke. And for all of us here at Lambda Weekly, our guest next week is Candy Newman. Candy Newman. Ken. <laughs> Candy Marcus. <laughs> Mark. Candy, Candy Markham. Markham. Thank you. I can't. <laughs> like she's never been on before. Uh, and uh, for everybody uh, listening, be best. <laughs>